everything slides in better with better class, better properties. Um, and then, so those those would be like the main things I would say for seeing mistakes that investors uh, or soon to be newbie investors in real estate make. It's no secret that real estate is one of the best investment vehicles out there, but how can we determine which strategies will best align with our financial ambitions? Well, you've come to the right spot. Whether you're an active real estate entrepreneur, a passive investor, or looking to get into real estate investing, our goal is to provide investors with insights and strategies for building our portfolios all while protecting our capital. I'm Daniel Nichols, and this is the Two Smart Assets Real Estate Investing Podcast. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Daniel Nichols, accompanied by our guest for the week, Charles Carrillo. And today we are the two smart assets. For those not familiar with Charles, he, Charles, he's the founder of Harborside Partners, a real estate syndication firm that has been actively investing in multifamily and commercial real estate since 2006. And since then, they've invested in over $200 million worth of real estate. Charles, it's great to see you, sir. Welcome to thanks the show. So, thanks so much for having me on, Danny. It's awesome to be here. Yep. Pumped to have this conversation, man. I know we're going to touch on a, a lot of important things that investors are going to want to hear about. But before we do that, we want to hear more about you. So tell us more about your background and how you got into real estate. Yeah. So I'm from a real estate investing family. My my dad has been a multifamily investor since 1984. He started with a six-family unit uh, apartment building. And from um, I'm from a small town in Connecticut. And this is about 20 minutes from where I grew up. And um, so we started there. And then my whole my whole upbringing was really spending two days a week at different rental properties. And my dad and one of his partners, they uh, grew it to about 100 units and um, start selling it off in like the late 90s. But uh, there was no syndication. It was all their own funds. And um, the 80s were very creative with getting property signed back and forth. So it was, it's not like you're going in and putting, you know, your, you know, your 25% down and stuff like that. It sure. was, you know, there's a lot of deals going on with people, you know, uh, just uh, assigning properties back and forth and stuff like that. So that's kind of how he started in it. And they were, the majority of them were like a D, C minus kind of properties. So growing up, that wasn't really something that I saw. And people were like, oh, did you want to like get involved right away? And I was like, no, <laughs> this does not excite me whatsoever. Yeah. And the issues my dad had to deal with, and my dad self-managed them all. He had like a small team because, you know, those properties are difficult to put to a third-party manager. Mm -hmm. uh, he just also didn't want to pay one either. It was easier for him to do it and uh, had more control. So... Uh, when I got out of college in 2006, I um, my dad kind of pressured me a little bit into buying a rental property, and I bought a three-family, what we call now house hacking, where okay. it's really you're buying one unit or buying one property, living in one unit, and renting out the others. In this situation, it was uh, two other rentals. And I always tell people that's like a fantastic way. If you really want to become active in real estate, or even if you kind of uh, you like it and you kind of want to dip your toe in, Doing the house hack is one of the best ways. And back then we didn't have a name for it, but it was just something that uh, it, it uh, it's really a great way of getting in there. And it's easier to manage because you're on site and you're only dealing with, you know, a couple other units. So it's not a huge, you know, full-time management thing. It's like a part-time thing here. And uh, so that was at the end of 06. At the end of 08, I bought another one of those three family properties. Uh, and I, and then in 09, I bought my first commercial property, which was a, um, it was a five unit building, four apartments, and then one office underneath. And that was kind of off to the races there. And um, I self-managed all those properties for six years, then put wow. some, uh, some other properties I had, um, third-party management property, professional property management in there in 2012 when I moved to Florida. And I sold that whole portfolio in 2022. Okay. So it was, um, and that was all C-class properties, um, better areas than most of my dad's stuff, but it was just something that was... Um, 
hey, you really learn hands-on about managing properties. And then as we've been down here in Florida for the last several years, I would say 2018-ish, we've been focusing on larger apartment complexes and uh, syndicating properties. So just to take in passive investors to uh, invest alongside us. Yeah, it's a great strategy, right? And it really shows that you've kind of yeah. grown along your journey, right? From 2006, right? You've had a, a lot of experience. You had your hand in a lot of different uh, areas of real estate and you've learned a lot along the way. So love to hear that story. I do have a question though. So you grew up with a father that was a real estate investor and you know you probably had some sort of influence on you in terms of whether or not you wanted to be in real estate or how you wanted to go from there. Um, do you recall any particularly useful lessons you learned from him during that time growing up? Yeah, so... I, I really, it was like getting into high school was really when the real estate bug kind of bit me. And I got my dad, we did dad start taking me to more closings, to court for evictions, to all types of stuff, buying property, selling properties, anything was involved with properties. I, he, he brought me along with, and uh, it was a whole nother education during high school. But um, I think some of the things that my dad instilled on me were, um, you know, he's, my dad's an old school investor. And if anybody's ever purchased properties from old school investors, they are an interesting breed. But I can pick one out exactly right away. Um, back a napkin type of people. My dad does not know, didn't know for like years what IRR was. Okay. He is strictly a cash on cash investor. Gotcha. And that's all that excites him. And um <laughs> it, and big spreads too. He and um so that was that was one of the main things that I think he really instilled on me was really buying for cash flow. And when I started buying, it was buying in better areas. And I show him properties, he's like, no, buy better areas. And then I'd show him properties that were like in less than ideal areas, let's just say. And he'd be like, do you really want Do you really want this property? It's going to require daily maintenance. You're going to have to be there daily. Also. And that was something that it wasn't like, hey, idiot, don't buy this. It was just like, you know, you don't know what you're getting yourself into. And sure. I tell people that now and they tell me these, they show me these huge uh, cash on cash, 14% returns that the broker is sending them. And I go, you're going to be there every day, man. And you're not going to find a property manager that's going to manage this property well. You know what I mean? And so it's a, it's a whole other beast when you start getting diving, getting into the, the less ideal property classes like C minus and below. Um, so I think that's one thing about the areas. One thing about buying on the cash, uh, the cash on cash type thing. Um, he was a big proponent of self-managing his properties. Uh, he, mm. You know, not like himself going out and doing work per se, but like had people superintendents, huge proponent of superintendents and properties. And um, that was. That was another thing. So I would say those are the main ones that I think my dad instilled in me when when we were when I was kind of learning little by little with him. Yeah, I mean, those are some great lessons, right? It's kind of like saying, how active do you really want to be with this property, right? Because there's scales to this, right? As we were talking earlier, you know, you can be very active or you can be extremely passive depending on what type of investor you want to be. And so I think that's a that's a huge lesson to learn um, from that as well. And you know, just kind of um, going in that thread, you know, you mentioned you managed uh, self managed properties for I think six years is what you said. Yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit. You know, what was what was that like for you when you began, you know, self-managing? Did you, did you learn a lot along the way? Did you have to have a lot under your belt already from working with your father? Talk to us about that experience for a little bit. Uh, that's a great question. So when I was, when I became a landlord in 06 and um, I, I had to go back to my dad who just like, and got like a lot of, you know, leases. He had very simple leases. They were like, literally like, like uh, front and back page yeah. leash, you know, okay. like old type of stuff like this, like stuff you're there doing in the eighties. And so I like, I was like, all right, I gotta like do something different here. So like, I use some of his stuff, use some of his applications. He kind of taught me, Hey, this is how you're gonna do the background check. This is how you're gonna do this. Um, a lot of things was, I think the most important thing was dealing with tenants. And my dad, um, I picked this up uh, really early. My dad was very good at dealing with tenants and um, tenants of obviously of a lower economic uh 
level than I was growing up and my father was. And it was something that um, being able to uh, be one-on-one with him. I mean, when, when rent was late, and the superintendents didn't pick up. My dad would literally go sometimes with me and we'd go apartment to apartment picking up those rents. Going in, carbon copy book, sitting on a uh, kitchen table. I'm sitting behind my dad. My dad's writing out receipts in the nice. old school carbon copy. And you're there for like five, six, seven, eight minutes. You know, you're talking to people. So it's not just like open the door, give me money and kind of thing. It's sure. you have to be personable and it's it's a whole different type of ma- mindset. Um and way you have to approach that. So that was another thing too, is that when I would deal with tougher tenants and I would bring it to my father, my father always had a good way of how to deal with it. And you know, you, you deal with some tenants that don't really care that much. They'll pay the rent. They're not really too picky. And then you're dealing with ones that move in and they're giving you a list of stuff that they want fixed. And then you have to go through that list. And it's, you know, it's difficult, especially like when you're dealing with someone that's older than you and you're in like your mid early twenties and um, you're telling people, I can't, I'm not, this isn't going to get fixed. And these things I will take care of right away. You know what I mean? And it's everything is like a negotiation. And, you know, it's just like you learn about it. And then as the end of my journey of self-managing, I became a lot more like astute on going through and having people sign off on this is the apartment. Do you agree that this, you know what I mean? Like, and then you avoid a lot of issues. And um, so like anything, you do it more and you get better. But I think those were a lot of things I picked up from self-managing property. The other thing too, is that, you can self-manage property. And when people say self-manage, I think it's got a connotation that you're like, you're doing everything. And that's how most people do it. And that's how I started doing it. Toward the end of my of this uh, six years in self-managing property, I kind of changed it where I was outsourcing a lot of um, using contractors to do a lot of different things that I didn't want to deal with, which was mainly... Um, you know, your landscaping's gone, all this kind of stuff. Before that, I would use like handymen for doing stuff. But before that ended, it was like... Um, Having people do snow removal, having people do the lawn, having people do all the lawns, all the stuff, um, you know, and taking have people sweep all the hallways and taking all this stuff was all taken care of. And I didn't have to deal with it. You know what I mean? I was just paying people to do it. And that made it much easier. Um, the rent collection, it was um, we didn't really have online portals back then for doing yeah. a lot of this. And with the and with the C-class clients, I mean, they just love paying cash. So it was something that my my property manager I brought in was like, listen, we're doing all money orders and stuff now. And he like made it a lot more professional, right? But when I was doing it, it was something that was, um, you know, it was, you know, you're clicking cash and stuff like that from people. And that's how they want to deal with it. And at that point, when you're in that, you know, you get bad checks and stuff like that. You're like, ah, cash isn't really that bad. This will be fine. But, (laughs) um, you know, checks are after after they get it, you're bringing it to the bank and like literally it's smudging because you're there so fast to make sure it goes through. (laughs) Um, But it was, uh, so those are the things I really found out. And, you know, it's a whole different thing when you're, when you're, if you ever self-manage C-class properties, um, it's a whole different uh, kind of business than B-class properties. And it's something that where it's more of a negotiation every month with a lot of with a lot of tenants sure. where they're going to pay a little late. You have to work out deals with them. You're consistently making deals. You know, if you get paid everything on the due date, it's you're pretty much like, wow, what a great month. This is the best <laughs> thing ever. B-class, you just like take it for granted that someone's going to sure. pay your bill on time. So that's one thing you learn a lot about working with people, um, kind of wheeling and dealing on the go, I guess you would say. And you have to make sure that when you have, if you're in this asset class, you have to make sure that your property manager is on the same page. Yep. Because if you're a C-class property manager, like, nope, if you don't pay by a due date, then like, you know, we're sending you to evictions like in one day. Like, it's just, you're just not going to make money. So that's a lot of things I learned uh, by self-managing properties over those years. 
Well, and that's some great lessons, right? And you're only going to get that if you actually go through the experience, right? You can't, you're not going to get that out of a book or anything like that. So I think it's it's good experience to have that. So with that in mind, you know, eventually you decided, hey, I'm going to move this over. We're going to have a, a professional manage my properties. What was the spark there? And then how did your role change as a real estate investor after you kind of relinquished those uh, those um, um, requirements and uh, requirements of your time? I just started focusing. I wasn't full-time in real estate at this time. It was kind of still part-time. So when mm-hmm. I sent gave that over to the third-party manager, which was fantastic, um, it allowed me to focus more on an online business that I was running at the time that was really paying for a lot of these down payments to properties I was buying. And then at that point too, it was allowing me so I could spend time there and then also spending time underwriting and reviewing properties a lot more and really having a criteria because I had it really down there. And I, at that point, I, I moved down to Florida and it was different ball games, start building a team again down there. But it was something that um, you, you, uh, those were some of the things is that you're able to just put more high level, right? It's the same thing with having people take care of those tasks at my property that I wasn't doing initially. When I had like one property or two properties, you'd be like, do some of it yourself. And then we start getting three and more. You're like, okay, now I need to like, I'm going to be here all day, like doing this every weekend. So I need to like bring someone in. And I think that kind of forces you a third party because now you're utilizing their team. And, um, you know, if I needed something that was like specialty, like, hey, call this HVAC guy or call this person over here because I know they give me a deal compared to your person. And um, but you can really spend your time on higher value activities. So I think that's, that's super important, right? Because you want to be able to to spend your time in those higher activities that are going to generate uh, more value for you, the investor. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think that um, there can be a lot of mistakes made in that process. And that's kind of one of the things that I want to talk about today is, you know, when I first got started, I made a lot of mistakes. I think we all do. Right. And, and then, uh, you know, you kind of learn from those and you grow. Um, but everybody's, everybody's story is different. Everybody's journey is different. So I want to ask you, what are some of the biggest mistakes you see other real estate investors making? Or maybe you could share with some of the, some of the mistakes that you've made along your way. Uh, so some mistakes I've made, um, I would say, most new investors, um, they are buying properties that are in that aren't good properties. They're buying properties mm. that are less ideal. Um, mistakes I made when I was buying is I bought properties with smaller units. I, if I had an extra bedroom in the units, I would have kept tenants a lot longer. Didn't have enough parking. These were older properties. These were like a hundred and these were like nineteen hundred built properties. Wow. Right? Okay. So they were old properties, and um, some of them had nice driveways at that time because people had done work and like you know did some of them didn't you know so that is a difficult time when you don't have normal things like that for your tenants, it's more difficult to keep your tenants. So um, those are things that I did. I think new investors, when they are uh, starting out, um, that's one problem they get, they get, uh, they, you know, they uh, broker sends them something and shows them all these different units. It's a low price per unit. Um, It's going to be a high cash on cash. Apparently that's what they're saying. And then you get into it. It's a whole mess. You know what I mean? Because the properties are very time intensive and you end up just like getting rid of them probably less than what you paid for and with like a whole bunch of like headaches and, you know, brain damage. And so if you get back, if you're, you know, buying properties, always, you know, looking for better properties and be comfortable. I, I hate saying this really, but you're like, you're, you're really kind of like getting, have to get past that little overpaying of it. kind of. Yeah. I'm not saying like grossly overpay for it, but when you're buying better properties, they're going to be more expensive, but sure. you're going to get a mix of that cash flow, And then you're also getting a much larger appreciation. And that's something that we shouldn't really be doing our numbers on per se, but it's something that um, you'll see that when you sell it and then go into bigger properties and you'll see like, wow, if I was just like, and you're going to get better tenants and it's going to be less management intensive. It's going to be easier to find third-party managers. Everything slides in better with 
better class, better properties. Um, and then, so those, those would be like the main things I would say for seeing mistakes that investors uh, or soon to be newbie investors in real estate make. Yeah. And that's a good, that's a great point, right? Cause you definitely want to be paying attention to the stuff, but if you don't have the yeah. experience, it's hard to see those things, right? I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Uh, you can learn a lot from there, but uh, you know, I think it has a lot to do with being able to evaluate risk and make good assumptions. Right. And, you know, yeah. like I said, that can be difficult for a new investor. So with that in mind, you know, we talked about some of the common mistakes that people make, but how do say uh, real estate investors who are uh, going out there today, looking at properties, um, how are they, or what strategies do you think maybe they could use or maybe you use in your journey to mitigate some of those risks? Oh, that's a fantastic question. So when when I speak to new investors and they'll ask about how to mitigate mitigate that uh, downside risk when they're buying, I would say number one is buy with multiple units. You know, don't focus on your single family houses. Uh, you can use your FHA. You can do two, three, four units. Um, but the more units, really, the better. Okay, it's going to give you less volatility. And uh, when someone's not paying, when you're having an issue, you're still going to have cash flow coming in, and the thing's going to be able to uh, cover its expenses in most situations. Number two is uh, long-term debt. Okay, so obviously this is easy if you're buying a two to four unit property because you can get 30 year fixed. Okay, so your first deal, don't do bridge loans, don't do floating rate debt, don't do variable, get something that's fixed at least five years. You know what I mean? Um, five, 10 years, go 10 years, you know what I mean? From your regular bank. And if you're getting like a commercial multifamily property, so five plus units, that's what I would say. And then have a reserve fund. You know what I mean? So if you're buying a property and you do out your numbers and it says you need $50,000 to put into the property, that means you really need like 65 or 70. Uh, ask me how I've, I've realized that before. <laughs> um, and then, uh, so, and then on top of that, then you want to put your six months of whatever your, I would say monthly expenses in there. It doesn't have to be all your monthly expenses. It could be, you know, just your mortgage payment. Uh, it could be mortgage payments a little bit more, and then you're going to have a reserve fund where you can add to it monthly. And that will be the amount that you're putting in that reserve fund will depend on what the quality of uh, and the condition of that property is. So if you run those three things where you're buying stuff that's not a major renovation, you're buying something that's pretty turnkey, um, getting long-term debt at least five years to 10 years, preferably. Um, and if you're, uh, you know, you're buying these properties and you're able to have multiple units in it, I mean, that's really going to alleviate a lot of your issues. And um, the reserve fund is really important and make sure that's above and beyond what you're putting the, you know, you're going to be putting the money in the property. And in that situation, if you need $50,000 for the property, you're not going to get that from cash flow from the property. Make sure you have that before you buy it. You're nodding your head. So I know that you've, you've, you've been involved with this before. So it's just, it's, it's one of those things that um, just make sure you have that and make sure you have the reserve and all these things are, um, and then add to that reserve every month with, you know, if you need a new roof in five years, you got to start putting away, you know, put that hundred, $200 a month away for that. In addition to other stuff. Um, and then this way, when anything happens and you can use, I use a, you know, back then it was like just one savings account. I'd use all my reserves into, you know what I mean? Right. right. And then it's like for all your properties, if there's any issue, you can pull up for another property, but you keep on building this every month. And um, that's going to, you know, you go through like, you know, it's February or March or April of 2020. You're going to be happy you have that reserve fund. <laughs> well, I mean, that's a great point, right? Those three things you buy, right? You get the right debt and you have capital reserves. Those are huge. Yeah. And it's showing today, right? Because, you know, I, yeah. I invest, you know, in my properties and I know that, you know, having these things, luckily with uh, my smaller, the small properties that I own, locked in debt, you know, fixed debt, no problem there had some reserves, but I can see how you get squeezed really easily if you didn't have the right debt in place, right? And we're seeing that with a lot of 
of the deals that I'm an LP in, right? If yeah. I'm being frank, right? A lot of a lot of syndicators had issues with uh, the rise in interest rates, and you know they didn't they had variable interest rate debt, and then they didn't have enough reserves to cover you know the delta there. So it's definitely something to pay attention to, and it's yeah. a great point to bring up, especially in these times right now. So pretty good. But um, okay, man. So what, you know, you guys are busy. I know you guys mentioned before you guys are focused on multifamily. What do you guys focus on for the rest of 2023? You guys got any objectives over the next six, 12 months or anything you're really keeping an eye on? Uh, Just keeping an eye on where, so our deal flow, like everybody else's has really dried up in the beginning of 2023. Really quarter two was really dry. Um, We purchased our last property in quarter four of 2022. And I wasn't really planning on purchasing anything, but I hate, I don't, I don't stand on the sidelines. It's something that we're always reviewing stuff. And uh, if stuff comes through, we're going to review it. And we're going to give an honest review of it. Because even if the market ha- is is on its way down, um, if you're still getting discounts, and that was our thinking when we bought at the end of 22, we were getting a discount on the property. And if it goes down a little further, it does. But it was a good solid asset. And um, you know that's a great thing about buying better assets. There's always buyers that are looking mm. to buy those assets and those properties. Um, but for going forward, um, we're still looking at properties. Um, we're hoping to do another deal here in 2023. Um, so it's just, you know, when it pencils, we, we will bring it to our investor base, but we're not in a rush and we're, we're, that's the, that's the beauty about not doing the fund structure, uh, is because we can then, you know, we can, as far deal flow slows down of ideal deals, we're not rushed to put money into something that maybe is not what we would choose if we didn't have that constraint. So you guys, you guys focus on the, the single asset syndications. Is that kind of what you guys focus on? At this point, we do, yeah. Okay, so it's just, cool. it's just, it's a lot easier. And then also uh, with LPs, we've realized that um, you know they can do more due diligence on it when there is uh, when they're able to. Here's a property address. You know, this is. Let me know what you think. Yep, uh, man. As an LP myself, you know, I've always preferred the single asset syndications over the fund model. I mean, they both have their benefits, but I definitely True. prefer the single asset syndication. But Charles, man, this is a great conversation. I got a whole list of uh, additional questions that I'd love to ask you. So we're going to have to get you back on the show because we're running out of time here. But before we get out of here, I know you got other stuff going on. Tell the listeners how they can find out more about you and anything else you're doing over there at Harperside. Yeah, sure. So our company is Harborside Partners. So if you go to our website, harborsidepartners.com, that's harborsidepartners.com. And uh, we have a lot of information on there. We have YouTube channel, we, which uh, two episodes a week, we have podcasts. Uh, we have a free book on passive investing in real estate. So if you're interested in anything to do with active or passively investing and in primarily in multifamily real estate, uh, join us on harborsidepartners.com. And if you're interested in learning about new deals, there's an investor forum there, fill out a few questions and speak to you one of the partners, maybe myself. Awesome. Charles, we're going to make sure to put that stuff in the show notes. Listen, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak to me today. Thanks a lot, Danny. Hey, real quick before we get out of here, do me a huge favor and leave a rating and review for the podcast. We're always looking to bring you guys the best insights and strategies for building our real estate portfolios and your ratings and reviews really help with getting top guest speakers that are the best in the real estate investing business. I promise this will only take you a few seconds and I really appreciate it. Thanks for being awesome, guys. Cheers.